Have you all thought today what a privilege it is to be able to gather together with other believers and sing praises to the Lord? We just, just sang in that last song about longing for heaven, which is such, such an important aspect of our faith, but what a privilege to have a foretaste of that now as we gather together to sing, to hear from the word, to encourage one another. Please join me in asking the Lord's blessing on our time before his word this evening. Father, as we just sang, thank you. Thank you for all that you've done for us in your son. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit, which guides us as we long for heaven, waiting where we will be with our savior and with the saints for all eternity. Bless this time. Use your word to challenge our hearts, to strengthen our faith as we go out into another week in the world. It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen. I was recently reading about a renovation that is supposed to happen on the hall or the building where the New York Philharmonic plays in New York. And apparently there is a, an entertainment mogul who has offered to donate $100 million to this renovation. So 106 zeros, it's a, a handsome, handsome chunk of change. There was a condition, and the condition was that he needed to secure naming rights for, for the building. Of course, the hall already has a name, and the family that has the naming rights now, they weren't just gonna give up the name. They had contributed at some point as well, and they felt that, that they had earned their name in the stone as it stood. So the solution was that the, the project managers pulling from the project finances decided to pay $15 million to the family who currently has the naming rights so that they would then give the naming rights to the other gentleman and then he would secure, or they would secure his $100 million donation. The donor insisted that the Philharmonic's hall bear his name into perpetuity. So the terms of his donation were that as long as the building lasts, it has to have his name. And he ironically said, quote, I, I think it's appropriate. How often can you change the name of this hall? The, the writer of the article aptly said, perhaps it's about injecting Hollywood glamour into New York's classical music world. Or maybe it's about a local boy coming home to make good or maybe it's just about getting a name in granite. Uh, this is but a small snapshot of high-level philanthropy, generosity in relationships that aren't governed by Christ. It's just about recognition, personal pride. In comparison, God-honoring generosity goes much deeper than the finances of giving and receiving. It's not just about the numbers. Generosity in the church for the sake of Christ transcends a temporal meeting of needs. God honoring generosity is supernatural. Its benefits are eternal. And in chapter four of the book of Philippians, we are shown a beautiful picture of this type of transcendent generosity. 
God-honoring generosity. We see that borne out in the relationship between Paul and this church. It is selfless, driven by a love for Christ. The generosity and gratitude that we see a picture of here is not driven by the pride of personal prestige or recognition. In connection with the word we heard this morning, the the heavy words of Christ, by studying the, the New Testament epistles, we get to see a picture of those who are faithfully living the life that Christ calls his disciples to. We're this morning that Christ calls, calls those who would follow him to a life of self-denial. And in the pages of the New Testament, so often we get to see that picture in the churches and the apostles who are following after Christ as, as he has set forth his path. And so we will be in Philippians chapter four this evening. Philippians chapter four. And as we read and study Philippians, we need to have a picture of Paul's condition in our minds so that we can really grasp what he is communicating to the Philippians. Philippians, as most of you know, is one of the prison epistles. And it is called such because Paul was in prison when he wrote it. In Philippians, in chapter one, you see this in verses 13 through 14 and also in 17, his reference to his imprisonment, to his chains. Most likely at this time, he was under house arrest which would have been different than you know, the Mamertine prison that he likely spent the, his last days in, a dungeon. He would have been kept under guard in his own living quarters. He was presumably chained to a Roman soldier, and he would have been dependent upon others to meet his basic needs, to come and minister to him. And we know from Philippians that Epaphroditus had come from Rome bringing a gift In chapter two, verse 25, Paul refers to Epaphroditus as a messenger and minister of his needs. And as Paul moves through the letter, we come to verse 10, and he begins to transition and to bring the letter to a close, and he's gonna turn his attention to his joy and gratitude toward the Philippians and toward the Lord, having received this gift from Epaphroditus, having received this service from the church at Philippi. And as I read the passages you follow along, please keep in your minds the sweet relationship between Paul and his church. In chapter one, verse seven, Paul says, I have you in my heart. In verse eight, he says, God is my witness how I long for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. In verses 25 and 26, he says, I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Paul's concern was their progress and and their joy, and he knew that seeing him in person would be grounds for their great exaltation in Christ. They loved Paul, and Paul loved them. In verse one of chapter four, Paul says, he calls them my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown. And so with this loving relationship in your mind, with this fellowship between Paul and this church, follow along as I read verses 10 through 20 of Philippians chapter four. Paul writes, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, 
For I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. What we have just read is not a token note of thanks to keep etiquette. Paul's heart is being poured out in these words as he expresses his gratitude to the Philippians for how they've cared for him. This portion of the letter is about so much more than the dollars and cents of missionary support. Paul takes the matter of generosity and he elevates it beyond temporal, physical matters to reveal the spiritual significance of the Philippians' gift for both the giver and the receiver. In a sense, this thank you note to the Philippians provides Paul's theology of generosity. He helps us to to answer the questions, how are we to think about generosity? What attitudes govern generosity? Why should Christians be generous? How should Christians respond to generosity? And what confidence, what faith do Christians have to be generous? As we look at these 10 verses, we need to remember that we're reading someone else's thank you note. Paul wrote this to the Philippians. And so it's personal. And it reveals the heart of the apostle. And it reveals the heart of this church that gets his affirmation. But we want to look at this and we want to learn from, from their interaction. So as we study Paul's thank you note this evening, we will note four observations that deepen our understanding of giving and receiving in the life of the church. Four observations that deepen our understanding of giving and receiving in the life of the church. And our outline is observations because I want you to walk away from our study struck by what you see in the life of the apostle and in the life of this church. We just want to observe what is exhibited by Paul that we need to emulate and what he commends in the Philippians that we also need to emulate. So Paul's thank you note begins in verse 10. And he's displaying his attitude toward the Philippians' generosity. And our first observation is the focal point of Paul's joy. The focal point of Paul's joy. He begins his thank you note by telling them his joy over over receiving their gift when Epaphroditus had arrived. He says, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you've revived your concern for me. This really sets the tone for the whole thank you note. A messenger from a beloved church that Paul hadn't maybe heard from in in 10 years prior, he had planted 10 years prior, they send him a messenger. You can imagine 
in those days, there wasn't communication like there is now. So I'm assuming he didn't have immediate notice when Epaphroditus showed up. He was probably fairly surprised. And when he comes, Paul was elated. He rejoiced greatly and his joy was in the Lord. We ask, what, what does that mean? What does it mean that Paul's joy was in the Lord? And really, it's the character of Paul's joy and also the, the basis. His joy was governed and directed by his union with Christ. And so what we see is that this is a uniquely Christian joy. But also, he knew that it was ultimately Christ whom he had to thank for receiving the gift in the first place. This welcome sight of Christian fellowship induced Paul to, to rejoice and rejoice in Christ. The deep root of Paul's joy was Christ. But Paul goes on to say what elicited his joy, and it's, that's, that's what's so important. What was the focus of Paul's joy? And he goes to great lengths in this thank you note to explain that to the Philippians. We want to notice that this was not a skin-deep happiness at the prospect of, of a new cloak or some food. The focus of Paul's joy went deeper than his circumstances. His joy was occasioned by their concern for him. He says, I rejoiced greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. His beloved Philippians' regard for him had been revived. And the idea behind this term for revived is, is that of blossoming or sprouting, a flourishing plant. We know that well in the Midwest, that in the spring after a dormant season, we see this. We see these plants that have lied dormant all winter, come to life, they start to flourish, they start to blossom, and that's the idea here. Their gift is evidence that their concern for him was, was flourishing again, it was abounding. And this was the focus of, of Paul's joy. It wasn't immediately the gift, it, was, it went beyond that to what the gift indicated about the Philippians. His joy was focused on the fact that their concern for him and for the gospel progress through Paul's ministry was again flourishing, and that it was flourishing through their generosity. And well, Paul shows us his gracious nature in the second part of verse 10 because he didn't want them to misunderstand. The first line here, letting them know that he was joyful that their concern had been revived, this wasn't a rebuke. And so he makes clear, he says, indeed you were concerned, but you lacked opportunity. The issue wasn't their lack of concern, but providentially their lack of opportunity. And the text doesn't indicate why. It doesn't indicate what, what caused them to not have opportunity to give, just that, that it wasn't there. And so Paul gives this note, this gracious note, to let them know he understand, he understood that they didn't have opportunity. So he graciously notes that he wasn't rebuking them and then moves on to verse 11. He says, not that I speak from want, it is important to notice that Paul goes out of his way to make sure his readers understand his attitude. This is why he says here, I'm not speaking from want. This means that he was not expressing his joy and gratitude to them because he finally had his physical needs met. It was so much more than that. This is, this is where we ask, Paul, you are in prison you are chained to a Roman centurion. You're awaiting trial. You probably have very little means. How could your joy not be a result of your improved circumstances? How could your joy not simply be because you were hungry and now you were fed or you were cold and now you're warm? And he gives his answer at the end of verse 11. 
He says, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Paul again clarifies. So first he says, my joy is because your concern is flourishing for me. And here he clarifies even further. I am content. His joy was contented joy. And this entire section on contentment is included by Paul to show that his focus was not on himself. It wasn't on his needs. His joy was not what their gift provided. It was what it indicated about the Philippians. It wasn't money if they brought money. It was what that money showed him about the Philippians' love for Christ and love for him and the gospel message. The term translated here as contentment was used to denote self-sufficiency. Self-sufficiency in the sense of being independent of circumstances, even self-supporting. Self-sufficiency and self-supporting don't sound like Christian virtues, right? That should sound funny to our ears, and they aren't. They're not Christian virtues. But that's the idea in the word, and Paul makes, is gonna make clear in verse 13 that he's not referring to rugged, independent stoicism. He is, he is talking about Christian contentment and Christian self-sufficiency, and we'll look at what that means. But Paul is including this statement of his contentment, again, to clarify his joyful response to the Philippians' generosity. His joy is independent of his immediate circumstances. It's the fruit of a contented heart. Notice in verse 11 that Paul says, he learned to be content. Aren't you thankful that it says that? He learned to be content, okay? This wasn't a genetic trait. The great apostle Paul had to learn contentment by God's grace. We know as we read the New Testament epistles that Paul was provided ample opportunity to learn contentment. And he goes on in verse 12 to show us the breadth of his learning. And he gives us a trio of contrasts. Taken together, these terms that we see account for the highest of high and the lowest of lows in Paul's circumstances. In verse 12, he says, I know how to get along with humble means. And I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, having abundance and suffering need. So from the peak of abundance to the lack of basic necessities, Paul had learned the secret of contentment in all of them. And how had he learned would have been through the refining fire of sanctification. Paul's trust in God had been strengthened through all the trials that he had endured in his apostolic ministry. All of those situations God had called him to walk in had taught him to be content. And he had learned to rely on a divine resource in his varied circumstances. And the resource for those circumstances is shown to us in verse 13. He says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is a well-known verse. Some of you may have picture frames or various artwork with it in there. We actually have one one in our house. And it is rightfully so a well-known verse because it provides such sweet assurance of Christ's work in the life of his servants. 
but we must be careful not to rip it from its context and miss the, the entire point of the powerful truth that Paul is driving at here. Understand that Paul is not claiming omnipotence, okay? Paul is not saying that nothing is beyond my capabilities as long as Christ strengthens me. There are a lot of things in this world that I am not capable of accomplishing. And quoting this verse as a life mantra will not provide any any ability to accomplish those things. But spiritual growth, and in this case contentment, Christ will provide strength for those things and for us to excel in those things. And that's what Paul is driving at. His focus is not on his ability to do anything that they could possibly come up with. His thought is that he can be content because of the one who strengthens him. The word translated all things in verse 13, it's the same term that we see up above in verse 12 when he says in any and every circumstance. And so that's the idea. He's able in any and every circumstance through the one who strengthens him. Paul's saying he can be strong in every circumstance because of the one who strengthens. The all things refers to the circumstances that Paul would walk in wherever the Lord calls him to. He's confident that he would be able to be content whatever those circumstances may be. Being filled, going hungry, having abundance, suffering need, Paul would be able to be content. And the point of verse 13 is that this contentment, we said this sufficiency, it does not consist of independence, but dependence. It's not self-sufficiency. It's Christ's sufficiency for his children. When Epaphroditus showed up, Paul's joy was not the reaction of a man who had been embittered by his circumstances until he found this temporary relief that Epaphroditus brought. It was the, the steady, sober joy of a contented man who had deep faith and trust in Christ. And this contentment allowed Paul to see beyond the temporal benefit of the Philippians' generosity and then to rejoice in what their generosity said about their hearts, said about what Christ was doing in their lives. Again, we ask, why would Paul go to such great lengths in a thank you note to explain his attitude of contentment? And again, it's to show the Philippians the focus of his joy. It's to show the Philippians that his joy was not simply based on temporal satisfaction. Because Paul was content, the focus of his joy was on the Philippians. And can you see how important this is in the life of the church? How important personal contentment a contented spirit that trusts Christ, how important that is in your interaction with one another, in, in your acts of service and generosity, and how to express gratitude when others are generous toward you. Hearts that are bound by discontent are not free to rejoice in what the Lord is doing in someone else's heart. 
They're not free to exult in what any act of service may say about someone else because it's, it's self-focused, focused on circumstance, on unmet desires. Paul was the receiver in this situation, yet he was more concerned for the giver's spiritual well-being, and that is astonishing. As we'll see in verse 17, Paul, Paul says he desired an eternal benefit for the Philippians more than he desired the gift that would meet whatever need he had at the time. The focal point of his joy was others, not his circumstances. As we move on into verse 14, Paul did not want his assertion of contentment to somehow imply that he wasn't grateful or that the Philippians had somehow done something wrong or that he was softly rebuking them for giving them a gift. He wasn't saying, look, why'd you even do this? I'm content, I don't need anything. And he wanted to be clear that that's not what was going on. And so in verse 14, he explicitly tells them that they did a good and noble thing by supporting him. And it's in verses 14 through 16 that we will find the second observation that deepens our understanding of giving and receiving. And that is the fellowship that undergirds the Philippians' generosity. The fellowship that undergirds the Philippians' generosity. Paul says, nevertheless, even though I'm content, nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Their gift was more than a, than a kind gesture. It was the overflow of a fellowship that was rooted in the gospel. It was a sharing in Paul's gospel ministry. And the terminology as translated as share in verse 14 is fellowship or partnership language that is used elsewhere in the letter to refer to the relationship between Paul and the Philippian church. The Philippians are said to be partakers of grace along with Paul in chapter one, verse seven. And then here in verse 14, they're shown to be partakers again with him in his affliction. In chapter one, verse five, they are said to have participated with Paul in the gospel. And here again in verse 15, they're shown to be participants with Paul in giving and receiving for gospel ministry and gospel support. Because of the Philippians' love for Christ and their love for Paul and the gospel, they enjoyed a rich, deep partnership and fellowship with the apostle. And as a manifestation of that fellowship, they had sent one of their leaders to minister to Paul's needs in sending Epaphroditus. They had become, Paul says, partakers in his affliction through their generosity. So in what sense did they share in Paul's affliction? Well, they had entered in to Paul's affliction is what's indicated with their generosity. His affliction had become their affliction. His needs had become their needs. What he needed, his burden became their burden. His cause became their cause. That's what it means that they partook with Paul in his affliction. So it's not money thrown at an impersonal cause. They weren't just writing a check or sending some food without any thought. It was so much deeper than that. And what we have here is just a sweet expression of the depth of the fellowship between Paul and his church. For Paul to write to them and to say, 
You sent Epaphroditus to minister to my needs. You have come alongside of me to help bear the burden of my affliction that I'm bearing here in my chains, awaiting trial, on trial for the gospel. Would have been so endearing to the Philippians. Verses 15 to 16 provide a sort of a historical window to the sacrificial love that the Philippians had expressed since they had been saved for Paul and the gospel. And with these verses here and other portions of the New Testament, we can sort of piece together the situation, the background, the Philippians. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. Paul's saying to the Corinthians, now brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. That's where Philippi was. That in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor, and here's our word again, participation in the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. From the very outset of their faith, they were a generous church, even though they weren't wealthy. They gave liberally, beyond their ability, of their own accord, in the midst of affliction, in the midst of poverty. Listen again to verse five in chapter eight of 2 Corinthians. They gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. Don't miss the order that's present in that verse. The Philippians set themselves aside. They followed Christ, They, they, they went after the Lord first, And then as a result of that, they took up partnership with Paul in support of the gospel ministry. And verses 15 and 16 are simply Paul recalling their past support. He's telling them something that they already know. That's what he says in verse 15. You yourselves also know Philippians. And then he goes on. When Paul first passed through Macedonia with the gospel, they were the only church that shared, that had that participation, that fellowship in the matter of giving and receiving. Paul's using the language of commerce here. He literally refers to an account of giving and receiving. He's using financial terminology, but more is in view than just a cold exchange of finances. Paul isn't simply talking about a ledger. It's a word picture, and it refers to the mutual giving and receiving that takes place in this deep gospel fellowship between Paul and the Philippians. This is what was implied in chapter one, verse five, when they're said to have been sharing in the gospel from the first day until the present. Our passage here again in verses 15 to 16 indicates that it was the Philippians who sent support to Paul while he was in Corinth. It was their support that allowed him to minister to that proud church that wouldn't support him. We see that even before Paul left Macedonia, the Philippians had supported him. While he was in Thessalonica, which was the next stop after Philippi, the Philippians had sent support to him more than once. As he says in verse 16. 
His recollection of this just shows that their full participation in gospel partnership, their love for Christ, their love for Paul, it had demonstrated itself in sacrificial generosity. He's telling them something they already knew because he's, he's further expressing his joy and gratitude for what they had done. Their concern had been revived. They were once again sharing the needs just as they had done at the beginning and he had not forgotten. He had not forgotten their past gifts. There may have been a hiatus why they lacked opportunity in God's providence, but once again, their love for Christ was on display as they supported Paul. We just note that this church loved Jesus and they loved Paul so much that they were willing to become partners with Paul in his troubles. This gospel fellowship that they had that embodied so much more than temporal recognition, so much more than them getting their name on something of remembrance, a stake in the ground, wherever Paul was to say, yep, the Philippians gave, okay, here's their name into perpetuity. It was so much more than that. That fellowship, that partnership that was ultimately Christ-saturated and gospel-centered was what undergirded their generosity. Now, verses 10 through 13, Paul has already made clear that his joy was not a result of having his needs met. His overflowing joy was not simply that he had finally had a temporal need met. Remember, he was content. But he had had times, and we see this in some of the other letters in his ministry, where enemies and antagonists had called his integrity into question over the matter of finances. And so Paul is extra careful that his appreciation, his gratitude for the Philippians' generosity isn't misunderstood as a hint that he needed more. He wasn't elbowing them saying, you know, good job, but keep it coming. And so in verse 17, he says, not that I seek the gift itself. Paul's recollection of their past gratitude wasn't a prod for give more, give more. He's saying, I wasn't seeking the gift itself. And we've already noted in our first observation what this shows about Paul. His focus was not the gift. It was the Philippian spiritual health. He was not seeking the personal gain from what they would give him, but he was actually seeking the spiritual benefit that would be shown in their lives by their gift. This verse also communicates a theological reality about generosity and a third observation that should deepen our understanding of giving and receiving, and that is that future reward awaits the generous. Future reward awaits the generous. Paul's continual desire was that churches would store up treasures in heaven, revealing hearts that are set on heavenly concerns. As Christ teaches in the Gospels, those who spend their life on earth concerned with heaven will be rewarded abundantly. And Paul desired that eternal benefit for this church more than he desired a gift that would bring him relief for his temporary physical affliction. Paul's desire for that for the Philippians, his desire that they would be mature and that they would receive a spiritual reward for their sacrifice shows us that generosity in the church is not just a means to an end. It's bigger. It's eternal. Paul saw generosity as a barometer for the soul. What the Philippians gave told him something about their spiritual condition. He desired that they would gain treasure in heaven 
as those who were sacrificially giving out of their love for Christ. We're just reminded that our love for Christ, our spiritual health is actually reflected in and by our generosity. Our generosity says a lot about our faith. It says if we are focused on eternal reward more than we are focused on temporary earthly treasure. And Paul's encouragement to the Philippians here and to us is that, that we would understand and believe that there is future reward compounding with interest in heaven for those who are generous. And the importance of generosity as a, as a gauge for our spiritual health. It told Paul all he needed to know about the Philippians that they were still sharing with him out of their affliction. And he desired to see that for their own benefit in eternity and for his encouragement. And up to this point in Paul's thank you note through verses 10 through 16, 10 through 17, Paul has gone to great lengths to make it abundantly clear that there are spiritual implications for the Philippians' generosity and that these spiritual implications far outweigh temporal realities, but that does not mean that Paul was indifferent to their gift. He was not indifferent to what he had received. And so he wants the Philippians to know that their gift had served its intended purpose. Look at verse 18. He says, but I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent. Paul's assessment of their gift was that he had been filled by it. He had been filled up. He had been abundantly supplied. And he returns again to that language, that language of giving and receiving. And he's essentially saying, look, I've received everything in full from you, Philippians. Epaphroditus brought everything that you intended to send. I've received it in full. I don't need anything else from you. Your gift has served its purpose. He wanted the Philippians to know that he was grateful, that their gift had served him well, that nothing further was necessary. And we get another glimpse of Paul's sweet disposition of contentment in verse 18. Because we don't know exactly what Epaphroditus brought, but it's probably safe to say that it wasn't a massive display of wealth. We just read about the Philippian church. They, they were poor. They gave out of poverty, out of affliction. Maybe they brought money for rent, food, some, some new clothes. We, we don't know. But Paul's contentment allows him to see whatever these gifts were as filling him abundantly. If Paul was content with humble means, then he was filled when he received this gift from the Philippians. And they could be encouraged that their gift had warmly filled their beloved apostle. Moving into the second half of verse 18 and then on into verse 19, Paul offers additional encouragement. Additional encouragement to boon the Philippians' generosity. And this is our fourth observation that deepens our understanding of giving and receiving. Here we want to observe the faith, the faith that motivates generosity in the church. The faith that motivates generosity in the church. So having briefly assessed their gift in the first part of verse 18, Paul now shifts his focus to God's perspective. God's perspective. He wants the Philippians to know that they can rest in the assurance 
that their gift is pleasing to God and the assurance that God will provide for their needs. And it is one thing for the Philippians to know that Paul is thankful. It is an entirely other thing for the Philippians to know that their gift pleased Almighty God. So in verse 18, he writes, I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Paul uses rich, technical, Old Testament-esque language of sacrifice here to refer to the Philippians' gift. Maybe it's, you, you hear the fragrant aroma and it's familiar to your ears. It's like in, in when Noah makes a sacrifice and it's said to be a soothing, a soothing aroma that ascended to the Lord. Paul is using the language of worship and how encouraging that would have been to the Philippians to know that their gift brought the smile of God. It pleased the Lord. Generosity in the life of the church is, is worship, acceptable worship before God. That's what's implied by these verses. Our motive for generosity should not only be about what takes place down here. You know, did so-and-so appreciate what I, what I gave? Did they appreciate my service to them? Did, they, did somebody notice what I gave, how I served them? Were they gracious in return? Primary focus is God's pleasure. And having faith that God is pleased by generosity should guide our giving, should guide our generosity, should guide our service of one another. In verse 19, Paul turns from assurance of God's pleasure to assurance of God's provision. Assurance of God's provision. And he encourages the Philippians to have faith in God's providential care for the needs of his children. Their act of sacrificial generosity, their act of denying themselves in order to serve Christ and serve Paul would be supported by abundant provision. Paul writes, and my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Paul uses this personal expression, my God. It's his God, the God who had cared for Paul through the Philippians' gift. The God who had his watchful eye on Paul throughout all the circumstances of his life, teaching him contentment, that God would provide for the Philippians, would supply what they needed And verse 19 is not a a blanket promise that Christians would never know lack or hardship. Okay, Paul of all people would know that, right? We know that from Paul's life. Paul had much lack, much hardship. But the promise is connected to the preceding verse and applies to the needs that the Philippians would have had after sacrificially giving to Paul and giving and sharing in the gospel ministry. Paul wanted them to know that not only was their sacrifice pleasing to God, but they could be assured that having given sacrificially, God would provide for them. They didn't need to worry if they had overextended themselves. God would provide for their needs. Paul says astonishingly that they would be supplied according to God's riches. And this implies that God will not provide necessarily out of his riches, 
but in some way proportionate to his riches. His provision would be shown to the Philippians as measured by his riches. And Paul is using language here to communicate about infinite resources from an infinite God. God's resources are glorious, as it says here, because God is in glory. God himself dwells in glory. And then he goes on and shows the basis of all of this provision is Christ. It is in Christ and through Christ that the Philippians would have their needs supplied as God's children. He leaves them no room to worry. Does God have enough? We have given of ourselves. We have sacrificed for you, Paul. We have sacrificed for the gospel ministry. Does God have enough? And Paul says, absolutely. He has enough and infinitely more. He will supply your needs according to his glorious resources in Christ. And that should boon the Philippians and strengthen their faith for generosity. And Paul wanted the Philippians to have full assurance that as they sacrificed their resources for the sake of the gospel, that God would be profoundly pleased and that God would provide for their needs. God was profoundly pleased with their sacrifice and he will provide for their needs. And this should encourage us. Confidence for sacrificial generosity in the life of the church should not be based on our own ability to work out the numbers. I'm, I'm not advocating for unwise stewardship, especially in light of stewardship month and our sermon series, okay? But our confidence for giving should be faith Faith that the Lord is pleased with our generosity and faith that the Lord will provide for our needs as we provide for the needs of others. Moving into verse 20, Paul's reflection on God's providential care and the glorious riches of God in Christ Jesus leads him to a concluding doxology, concluding praise. Reflecting on this care that God will bestow on his children and the whole matter of the Philippians' generosity and their loving relationship with Paul sends Paul into the stratosphere. He just bursts forth in praise. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. It's just a reminder that the whole matter of giving and receiving is, it ultimately redounds to God's glory. Paul's doxology here should direct our eyes where they need to be as we consider generosity and gratitude. As we said throughout the thank you note, Paul is showing that it's transcendent, the generosity and life of the church, spirit-driven in love for Christ, it's transcendent. And here he shows, elevate your view. Look, this is about God's glory. The ultimate aim of loving, selfless fellowship in the church is the praise of God. What a fitting end to Paul's thank you note. Seeing an apostle and a church live out the discipleship Christ called them to, self-denying discipleship in a relationship of gratitude and generosity should elicit praise, should elicit the praise of God. My hope is that studying this text, studying this thank you note, if you go back and read through this thank you note, that it, it just makes you say, I wanna be like that. I wanna be like Paul. 
I want to emulate Paul. I want to be content. I want to be more concerned about others' spiritual, cons- spiritual growth than I am concerned about my own circumstances. I want to be able to see spiritual fruit in somebody else in their giving, in their treatment of me more than I'm worried about rejoicing that my own temporal, physical needs have been relieved. See, I want to emulate the contentment, the, the other-focused joy of Paul. And then look at the Philippians. I want to say, I want to follow the example of the self-denying, sacrificial generosity of the Philippians. What a church. What an example they were. They just loved Christ so much. They couldn't, they just wanted to give. They just wanted to give to Paul. They just wanted to support the gospel ministry. They just wanted to do whatever they could in their partnership. And we need to have faith in God's pleasure and God's provision as we think about our stewardship and as we give and receive with generosity and with gratitude. Can you pray with me? Father, thank you for the examples that you have preserved for us in your word. Thank you for the work that you did in your beloved church at Philippi. Thank you for their example to us and thank you for your apostle and his example to us. Strengthen our hearts by your spirit through this word. Guide us to pursue this self-denying love for Christ as we labor to serve one another with gratitude and with generosity. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.